Hello, welcome to the West Side Podcast. This is where we'll post some of our audio from our sermons on Sunday, and we're so glad that you're here. Westside's vision is to reconcile people to God through the grace of Jesus step by step. We hope you enjoy and thanks for tuning in. Wow. I don't know. Can you, this isn't on page. Look, I'm, I'm standing in front of my notes. Can you, can you grasp, I'm not asking you to answer it necessarily, but the chance we have here to pull together and do this thing together and, and the chance for people who maybe have just been sitting someplace and felt like a, like a kind of an observer or something, they get a chance to, to do something about it. Look, here's the deal. My father used to say, he, my, my, my father was a pastor for all my life and he would marry lots of couples and I would get to be part of that because I got to ask to sing at a lot of weddings. And uh, yeah, some of them. <laughs> anyway, but my dad, the first thing he would say in rehearsal is he'd look at the bride and he'd look at the groom because he knows everybody's nervous and the parents are all sitting around and everybody's thinking of flowers and cake and everything. And he'd look at those two and he goes, look, all that matters is that you show up and you show up and we're going to get this thing done. And there's something about as long as we get some chairs for you guys to sit in and we got our Bibles, this thing's going to happen. Right? And I'm excited even about just to see how it's all going to work together. Uh, and I hope you are too. Don't fret. Don't be nervous, and if you feel people that are sort of like, I don't know if I want to go there anymore, like, say, no, 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 stick with it, stick with it. I think some great things are going to happen. None of that was on page, so hopefully I won't go too late now. But as I start this, a uh, couple of confessions for you right off the get. One is, if you remember last time I preached here, <laughs> I had a little accident right here. Uh, I actually fell right in front of everybody, and so I'm going through a little bit of PTSD here, uh, especially with the pool over here. Um, I'm just kind of, I'm going to stay away from this general area altogether. Um, no, but seriously, two confessions. One is that what I'm going to preach on today is extremely countercultural. Um, this is not something that people are digging these days, what I'm about to tell you. It goes against so much of just secular humanism and what we're seeing that even is starting to move its way into the church a little bit with different ideas that is even coming out of church and I would say church people that has humanist bases for their things. This is not going to be pretty for that kind of thinking. That's one confession. The second confession is that this is very much a message to the church. So if you're here and you're new or you're somebody that's sort of just checking things out, I want you to feel completely welcome. You get to kind of see like maybe like an insider, like what sometimes what the leaders are saying to the church. You get to see that like we're calling ourselves on the carpet with some things sometimes and sometimes we got to speak the hard stuff and you get to see that, that we're not just uh, light and fluffy and passing out candy to everybody, okay? Um, so that's going to be, now everybody's sort of nervous, like, no, maybe I shouldn't have come. Um, no, I think God's got something good for you. Uh, let's start with Luke 9. Verse 23, this is Jesus talking. He was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Ooh, right away. If you've been around lately, you're gonna see that this is countercultural right away from that verse. Um, 
Let's pray, and then we'll get into what we're going to talk about. Father, as I always pray when I go to preach, Lord, let your word do what it does. Let the fact that it's living and active and has this ability to go right into our souls, right into our spirit, and speak things that won't even get said from up here behind this pulpit. I trust you to do that, Lord, because I trust that you love each person in this room so dearly. And so as we do this together, Lord, I I just pray that you'll do that now. And I ask you for help and wisdom to get through it. Amen. Amen. Okay. So as you guys know, we've been in Mark. Um, I've been loving it. I hope you guys have been enjoying it. I've actually liked like the, the chance for some of us to get to preach and see different people. We're going to continue that for the next month or so. It kind of until we figure out what's going on with a new pastor. But, you know, I, I keep joking with Gianna, like, we need to see this as like Forrest Gump where this is a box of chocolates. So you don't never know what you're going to get. So you got to keep on coming on Sunday to see who's speaking. We got some pretty cool people lined up. It should be pretty neat. Um, And hopefully they'll be a little bit more um, uh, happy than what what this message is today. Um, I'll get to that. I know I'm scaring y'all, aren't I? I should just stop that. But we're going to recap. I'm I'm starting in Mark 6. That's where we're at. I just want to do a quick recap um, to get you there, okay? So Mark starts off. He doesn't even start off with Jesus. He starts off with talking about John the Baptist right off the get. And then the baptism of Jesus in uh, chapter 1, 9 through 11. Then he talks about his temptation. He only goes, only uses two verses to talk about that, where Matthew talks about Jesus' temptation quite a bit more. Um, He only only uses two verses to do that. Um, And then right after Jesus' temptation, John is in prison. We're going to talk about that in a little bit here. And Jesus starts preaching, chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. I'm going to motor through this, but I want you to see this. Then Mark just catches fire, throws it into fifth gear, and starts just motoring with this idea of Jesus' power and authority. It's actually pretty amazing. It is not a slow read. It is flying. Okay? Right after that, right after John's imprisonment, we got, this, we got this, all, these, all these places of Jesus' power and authority. Check this out. Right away, chapter 1, 21 through 28, over a demon. We see him cast out a demon. Then he shows his power and authority over sickness in chapter 1, verses 29 through through 39, with Simon's mom, and it says right after that, and he healed many others. And then over leprosy, his power and authority over leprosy in chapter 1, verses 40 through 45. That had to have been cool, because Mark... You know, he's saying a bunch of people got healed. It's easy to go, and Jesus healed a bunch of people. For Mark to pull out a story, that must have stuck with him. I think the guy with leprosy had some stuff grow back, to be honest with you. Leprosy back then, you'd have stuff fall off. You know, eyes and fingers and toes and nose and all that. I was going to sing the song, and I'm like, no, don't sing the song. Um, anyway, but I think, I think people saw things grow back on the man. That had to have been really cool, really cool. Then he shows his power and authority over paralysis. That, that's one I got to speak on in chapter 2, the first 12 verses of chapter 2. Then he shows his power and authority over the religious elite in chapter 2, verses 13 through 20. And over the Sabbath, he sort of redefines, in a sense, the Sabbath 
in chapter 2, verses 23 through 28. His power and authority over deformity in chapter 3, right in the first six verses with the guy with the withered hand. That had to have been pretty cool. I don't know what that looked like, but that had to have been pretty cool. Again over demons in chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. And then we hit Mark 4, where Mark 4 seems to kind of break away a little bit from all of this power and authority talk. And that's where Jesus starts to do some parables and all. Gianna got to speak on that and and spoke on the sower and did a really great job. But right at the end of chapter 4, we got to Sarah Creighton um, spoke on this. We see his power and authority even over the weather, right? That was chapter 4, verses 36 through 41. And then even over more demons, Tyler talked about last week. In chapter 5, the first 20 verses with the demoniac who had tons of demons in him. Guys, that had to have been nuts too. This guy, Matthew says, this guy was lurking about those tombs for years. And he, and he literally says he was shrieking. Weird, right? I mean, this guy had to have been the stuff of legends. People would have been like, don't go near those tombs. That guy's weird. That guy's powerful. He has some kind of weird thing. And... and people would probably stay away from him and he was probably scary. I mean, the stuff of horror movies and Jesus comes up and he just cowers before Jesus. I love that. I love that. Jesus shows his power and authority over those demons. And then again, towards the end of chapter five, verses 21 through 34, he shows his power and authority over sickness again with the woman that had the bleeding issue. We're kind of skipping over to get to chapter six. And then lastly, at the end of chapter 5, verses 35 through 43, the official's daughter, Jesus shows his authority and his power over death. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. So I, I did all that because I wanted you to see, get this idea of this, like, Jesus is just like steamrolling over. Like, wow, power and authority, man. Hang out with this guy and you're going to have everything cool. You're not going to have sickness anymore. You're going to be like, you're going to be out of like, you know, hey, demons, get away from me. And you're going to be able to, you know, walk up to people with leprosy and be like, hey, I got this guy. Everything's going to be fine. And he just seems to have this power and authority. The, rigid, the religious elite can't figure out what he's doing and they're frustrated with him. By Mark 3, it only took three chapters for them to start to plot to kill Jesus. And now we get to Mark 6. Now, keeping in mind, I know you probably have heard this if you've been in church for any time, which a lot of you have. There's no chapter breaks. There's no verse breaks. So it's not like Mark started a new chapter, but we say chapter 6. That's what we're starting here. Mark 6 dials things down. So it's like Jesus is going 150 miles an hour, and we hit Mark 6, and we kind of start, mm, kind of like when, you, uh, when you're landing in a plane, and you're, you're flying somewhere, and you, you kind of know that you've got that maybe half hour left because you feel the plane slowing down. And I don't know about you, like I feel like I've flown enough that I go, oh, that's just the plane slowing down. But there's still that thing in your mind that goes, the plane slowing down, why? You know, I do that. Anyway, this this hits the brakes because Mark 6 isn't so exciting anymore. And we're going to talk about it, we're going to go through it. Um, With the backdrop in mind that I've already shared with you, what Jesus calls a disciple I want that to be our foundation as we go through Mark 6. So you'll understand why at the very end. But as I was studying this, um, I think it's something the Lord just brought out of me, out of the blue. And, and so I, I'm, I'm going to share it with you. Um, 
So let's start with Mark 6. I don't, I don't have them up there. I just want you to sit and listen, and, uh, and we'll go through this. Um, here we go. Mark 6, 1. And when he went out from there, he came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. His hometown was Nazareth. We have a map for it. Um, I love maps. You see where Nazareth is? It's kind of to the left between the Mediterranean Sea and Sea of Galilee. That's Jesus' hometown. Tiny little town. Insignificant. In fact, John and John, you'll see him say that people were like, does anything good come out of Nazareth? There's not really a whole lot of respect for Nazareth. But that's where Jesus grew up. And this is the hometown that it's talking about. And so when he went and when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogues. And the many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And, and they took offense at him. They took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives in his own household. And he could do no miracles there except that he laid his hands upon a couple sick people and healed them. I love that. He could do no miracles. Well, he did a couple. Like, we'll take a couple here, right? <laughs> if you only do two, Lord, let's, let's do a couple. That's fine. You don't have to do everybody. Um, so I think that's kind of funny. And he wandered, he wondered at all of their unbelief and he was going around in the villages teaching. Look, so Mark starts off with, even though Jesus had all this power and authority, he comes home and suddenly, where did his power and authority go? It seems like it's dwindled a bit. There's unbelief. There's all kinds of stuff he's dealing with. It's very interesting that there's, there's it's suggested that he has sort of a fractured relationship with his family at this point with his brothers and even his mom. These are people that should have known, at least his mom for sure should have known that this is the Messiah. I mean, if I recall right, I think I read that she had an angel tell her that. So that she should have known. The brothers I could see, this punk, like, what? You're gonna make me, yeah, I could see the brothers not being into it. But the point is they had this fractured relationship. Uh, we see this, there's hints to it. Mark 3 20 and 21 is where his people, his family, calls him crazy. They think he's crazy. And then we see it in Matthew 12, 46 and 50, through 50. And Mark 3, 31 through 35 is where he's got the crowd near him. And somebody comes up and says, hey, your mother and your brothers are here. If you remember what Jesus said, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Kind of in a weird way, just like almost like disrespectful. And I'm not, I don't, I'm not gonna say it was utterly fractured, but it just seems like there's hints to that. Some of the suggestions of that are, are these, like um, Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Obviously, Joseph, his father, was a carpenter. And there's, and I don't wanna get into all this. There's a lot of history here, but apparently up, up north, there's a city that I believe was completely destroyed and was being rebuilt during Jesus's day. It's a really good chance that, that Joseph was a carpenter who was working on that city because they needed all the carpenters on hand kind of thing. It's very possible, very possible. Jesus might've even done that. We don't know, but that's possible. But for Jesus to have left his family to go do what he was doing, Jewish custom was pretty hard on that. In Jewish custom, if you left the family biz to go do your own thing, that was like you disowning your family. So even though they may have known everything that Jesus was supposed to do, 
like, oh, he's the Messiah, it still might have hurt them for him to leave them like that. I don't know. I'm just speculating, and so do scholars, about why this fracturing might have happened. It's also, we don't have good or almost any evidence at all to really know or understand how Jesus was taught. In other words, for somebody to become a rabbi, they were schooled for years under another rabbi, and then they would get to a certain age, usually about 30 or so, and then they would be released to be a rabbi themselves, and they could mentor others. Well, there's no real evidence for Jesus ever doing that. There's definitely evidence that he was in the synagogue sometimes and he would, remember, he would talk with the, the leaders and, and confound them with his knowledge already. There was those things. Maybe he was being trained a little bit, but there's just no evidence for that. So maybe his family is kind of doing the, who do you think you are, bro? Like you come out of nowhere and you're just telling us this and that. That might be one of the, that might be a reason. But the point is, we're seeing for the first time something that seems to be holding Jesus back. Mark hits the brakes a little bit and saying, you know, Jesus, I'm not saying he can't do it. And, and look, it, it, Matthew doesn't say he couldn't do miracles like Mark does. Don't develop a doctrine over that. I've seen that. Um, becomes more about your faith and your belief as if that's what Jesus has to use. And if you don't, if, you, if that's not there, he can't. Jesus can do whatever he wants, and even Mark says he still did a couple miracles. I wouldn't form a doctrine off of that, but there is some reason why Jesus didn't do miracles there, like Matthew says. Um, anyway, that's just interesting. But here we, we keep, keep moving on. This is just a little section. We'll get through fast because I want to get to the last section. So we're in Mark 6, verse 7 now. And he summoned the 12 and began to send them out in pairs. And he was giving them authority over the unclean spirits. That send them out is the word, the Greek word for that is apostolion, um, is where we get the word apostle from, be people who are sent. And he sends them out and he gives them, some, some Bibles say power, some say authority, over the unclean spirits. It's a really interesting word. Um, that word there um, is excusia, or I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, excusia. Um, here's the cool thing. It's not the same power that we're given when we get saved by the Holy Spirit like we see in Acts. The infilling of the Holy Spirit that we're told Jesus does, the Holy Spirit does, God does. I say all three of them because Jesus says, the Father and I will come and make our abode in you. I believe you get all of God in you, okay? Um, that is dunamis power, like where we get the word dynamite. And it, it's different than this word. This word, this power, this authority suggests with it royalty. It's like when a king says to you, I'm giving you all, like I need to take a vacation. I'm giving you my entire kingdom right now. You have all the power and authority in my stead. All yours. It's a pretty big word. And it's a special word because we don't see it again. If we don't see it again until Revelations. That word. Now, does that mean it's better than dunamis? I'm not trying to say that, so don't, don't put me there. I'm not saying one's better than the other. I'm not saying like, oh, this or that. It's just different. These guys had something different at this time. Okay, so mull over that. But he instructed them to take nothing. I'm gonna, I'm gonna skip down. He tells them only bring a few little things, um, kind of gives them, um, you know, packing, you know, guides. Um, 
Verse 12, and they went out and preached that men should repent. That men should repent. That word mentineo, to change your mind or completely turn around. Guys, we say repent today and we're going to get a how dare you. Even with our own brothers. We don't use this word anymore, repent. Guys, I, I, I don't mean to be mean or I don't mean to be hard on you guys. T- today I'm, I'm kind of doing a football coach thing. I coached football for 15 years. And there's sometimes that you just need to go, look, here's the truth. I think sometimes the church is deathly afraid to say we need to repent. But that's what their message was. Do you understand that the, the, these guys, they're still in a time with Jesus Look, look, maybe this is elementary to you, but it was sort of a light bulb that went on in my head years ago when I was reading over this. Like, wait, this is not the gospel message. These guys, when they went out and preached, Jesus hadn't died for their sins yet and rose again. This is just a repent message. This is a you guys need to change your ways message because the kingdom of God is here. But it wasn't yet what Paul would do, which is, hey, Jesus was here. He died, rose again for your sins, and you need to get on board with that. That that was different. I'm just making a point that I don't want to put the, the church, like throw the church under the bus. But I'm nervous about what we have sort of allowed to creep in in the name of acceptance and love and just, hey, and we're certainly not supposed to go out there and tell people how terrible they are. That's, please don't think that I'm saying that. I'm just reading the Bible here. I'm reading Mark here. And he definitely hits the brakes and starts to go, hey, listen, this is real. Because now what we're about to see is really real. Look, I, I wasn't, I'm always excited to preach. I wasn't, I wasn't necessarily excited to preach on this but I think it's something that we need, okay? Because now we're gonna hit the story of John the Baptist. Mark 6, 14 starts off with, and King Herod heard of it, heard of the guys going out and having power and doing what they were doing, and especially Jesus, he heard of Jesus. He heard that they had become well-known, and people were saying John the Baptist has risen from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying he is Elijah. And others were saying he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod, Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. Now, interesting about Mark is Mark hasn't told us that John died. This is, like a, like, this is almost telling us like we were supposed to know this already. This is a... This is, telling us about Herod being nervous about what he's seeing because he had already killed John a while ago, okay? So this is a flashback here. Now, I'm going to explain why I'm telling you that in a minute here, but pretty interesting. Like, oh, you know, last we heard of John, he was put in prison, but now he's already beheaded. Let's, let's quick talk about Herod, okay? Herod Antipas, I got a picture of him. Look at that. Yeah, that's exactly what he looked like, by the way. Um, no, on, I looked up Herod Antipas on, in Google, and I've grabbed the first picture. Um, I was going to get you John the Baptist's picture, but most of them were kind of gross and violent. 
So I stayed away from, and most of them had his head like on a platter. Um, so we, we stay away from that. Anyway, check this out. So don't, let's talk about Herod for just a minute. Um, and I, I'm going to skim over really fast. I, I, would, I would encourage you to check, check out the Herod story. It's like a reality show. It's pretty crazy. Um, it's really interesting. Uh, I'm going to just touch, touch on it so that you get an idea of what we're talking about here. Herod can get kind of confusing because there's lots of Herods, okay? Herod the Great was sort of the first one. He was the father of these other guys. He had, they say, probably six or seven wives. So he had sons and people, daughters with uh, different women, okay? So you got these guys who are all half-brothers with Herod the Great. Herod the Great, he's the one that had children killed when Jesus was born. He was known as being horribly mean, ruthless, but he was also known for being an incredible builder, a genius builder. He built all kinds of things that I'm not going to get into right now. You can look that up. Funny thing is he called himself Herod the Great. Nobody else did. <laughs> he did. He was 4'11", is what they say. He was a little guy, okay, shorter than me. Um, and so I think he is like his meanness is like he was like a little chihuahua dog or something like that. Um, he's a mean dude. But he, he has sons. He's got all these different Herods. There's Philip I, Philip II. There's Antipas, Archelaus, Agrippa, and others, okay? Um, and so when he dies, he breaks up the Judean kingdom into four areas. That's where we get the word tetrarch from. That's actually what Herod Antipas, which is what this story is about. This is Herod Antipas in this story. That's where he, we, we find out that he's actually a tetrarch, which just talks about four four provinces, whatever you want to call them, that the Roman government broke that up, and he's in charge of one, okay? He goes up north, and he meets one of his brothers, Philip, his brother's wives, Herodias, and they dig each other, and they have an affair. And he brings her back down to his kingdom and divorces his wife. I can't say his wife's name. Phasalius. I'm close enough. You guys don't care, but that, that's, that was Herod. Antipas's wife. The problem was that she was the daughter to King Aretas of Nabathea, and it ends up starting a war. So this affair actually got, get, gets people killed, okay? Pretty bad. Point is, good old Johnny B, he speaks out against it. He talks about how immoral it is, and John the Baptist gets arrested and thrown into this place called Machaerus. Um, this is what Macarius looks like kind of today. Oh, oh, that's the map. So you can, you can see, we, we were in Nazareth way up there. See where Macarius is, the one that's circled down by the Dead Sea, off down to the right there. Okay, show the next one. This is Macarius. It's like a big, cool, like plateau type of place. That's where um, Herod had built a, like a palace. Um, it was like a fortress. It started off more for like men of war and places for them to stay. But when, when Herod Antipas, that's, a, that's an artist's rendition of it. When Herod Antipas took it over, he sort of made it into like a party house and a palace and a place to come have fun. But it also had dungeons and different things like that to, to place prisoners. Go to the next one. So this is what it looks like today. That's excavated. So there's some stuff there. And then the next one, Nathan, is that one's kind of cool. You can see that it's still, that's kind of what it looks like today with, with, while it's excavated. This is where John the Baptist was in prison, okay? A place called Machaerus. Um, just for time, I'm gonna move on instead of reading the entire story. What ends up happening is Herod has a birthday. Herod Antipas has a birthday. 
bites a lot of people, and he has women dancing for the men. And Herodias has her daughter dance for these guys. Now, last week was Mother's Day. This would have been a fun message to do on Mother's Day because we could have talked about how horrible mother Herodias must have been to encourage her daughter to go dance probably scantily and seductively in front of a bunch of drunk men. That's brilliant. <laughs> I mean, it's just crazy. But that's what, that's what, that's what she did. And Herod's pleased with what he sees, probably in a drunken stupor. He says to her, he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. Interestingly enough, that was not his power to give half a kingdom to her. Um, it's, it's fact, it's in question what he really could have given her. Um, but she goes back to her mom in verse 24. What shall I ask for? She asks her mom, what, what shall I ask for? Look, he, he just told me I can have anything. And she's the one that says the head of John the Baptist. And, and I think to myself, I mean, she probably could have asked for all kinds of, even just, even just some money or something. I mean, Antipas probably could have gave her something like that. He didn't have the power to really give her half the kingdom, but he could have given her something. But instead she listens to her mom and asks for the head of John the Baptist. And the king was bummed out. <laughs> it says that although the king was sorry, but because of his oath and because of his dinner guest, he was unwilling to refuse her. He's got all, this, all these people here that are, he's going to look bad if he turns that bet down or whatever. And so he has John the Baptist beheaded. After that, we get to this place in Mark, Mark 30, 630. And the apostles gathered together with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he'd said to them, come away by yourselves to a lonely place and rest a while. Verse 32 says, and they went away in the boat to a lonely place by themselves. Now, let me just take a quick sidebar. One of the things that's interesting when you compare notes, when you compare this story with like, especially with Matthew, it gets a little confusing. The timeline is a little bit off. Matthew has the sending out of the guys the beheading of John the Baptist like, like a, a flashback like Mark does. But Matthew says when they heard of John the Baptist being killed, they get together in a quiet place, a lonely place. Whereas Mark makes it sound like the flashback is the beheading and now we're back to real time. It's a little confusing. Um, let me just say that that's okay. Don't get freaked out when you have what seems like disharmony between the Gospels. Um, really quick, it, it, you know, when a, when a detective is trying to get to the story of a crime that's happened, and let's say he's got five different people he's asking questions to, they expect fully two things. One, to get some type of story that rises to the surface. But they also expect each one of them to have a little bit different account. If all five of them have the exact same account, they're going to throw their story out because they're going to say that these guys got together and practiced what they were going to say, and now we don't know what the truth is. And that's what some people do with the Gospels. A week ago, I'm with my mom and my sister. I had a little bit of vacation to see them. We're sitting in the room, and they're telling me about this really neat guy that works for the church. And they're kind of doing the, Dan, you would love him. He's a neat guy. He's such a cool guy. You would love him. Oh, yeah, he comes in. He's so happy. And, and my sister's like, 
chiming in like, oh yeah, he's just a neat guy. He's kind of funny. And always wears his hat backwards. And my mom was like, no, no, he doesn't. He wears it forwards. He always wears a hat, but he wears it forwards. And my sister was like, no, he doesn't. He wears it backwards. And she's like, no, he doesn't. And they literally got in an argument over this neat guy, right? And then right away, because I, I, you know, I have this message on my head all the time, it made me realize, I was like, this is just two people that work at a church that both know this guy and they can't even get that story straight. Now, what some people do with the New Testament would be the same thing as me going, my mom and sister are lying to me. There is no guy like that that works at the church that wears a hat. They're lying. It's crazy. But that's not it. What came to the truth is there's definitely, what I can tell you is there's a guy that works at their church. He's a pretty neat guy and he wears a hat. And that's kind of the idea when you start looking at this. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of manuscripts that have all kinds of little discrepancies all over the place. But the, but the surface or the, or the truth rises to the surface. And that's what we have here. So don't worry about that. My point is, and I need to, I need to really start getting moving here. That I think that this meeting happened. Meaning, I think that these guys got together and mourn John the Baptist. I think when they went off by themselves, Jesus knew they needed a little bit of time together. And look at me. I can't help but think of what Jesus' eyes, when he looked at his disciples, each one, as they sat in quiet, possibly thinking, where were you when John got his head taken off? Jesus, where was your authority then? I wonder if they thought to themselves, is that going to be me? Jesus is looking at them with those eyes. I can only speculate. He knows it's coming for him. Number one. But he's also looking at guys that he knows. It's going to, they're going to get martyred one day too. Just makes me wonder. I mean, can you imagine the depth of that? The depth of that? And it makes me wonder if Jesus, whether he said it or not, with his eyes, I wonder if he was saying, you still with me? You still with me? I want to wrap this up by reading something. I wanted to finish with something that I wanted to be precise. So bear with me. It'll only take another couple minutes. I think Jesus, I could see Jesus being like, you still with me? I get it. We know that Jesus asked that question before. In John 6, verse 66, ironically, John says many of his disciples left him that day. This came after Jesus would deny the crowds another miracle. The crowd was there seeking a sign and pressured Jesus to prove himself. And in a comical way, they offered suggestions, mostly food related. Instead of doing another big feeding miracle, Jesus instead said in John 6, 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of this world is my flesh. This idea of Jesus' flesh being the bread of life was something he repeated many times in John 6. That statement perplexed and probably disappointed the crowd and most of them left him that day. Jesus then turned to those who remained, his true disciples, and he asked, Are you going to leave as well? Or in other words, you still with me? Peter speaks up, one of my favorite places in scripture. Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. 
A true disciple follows at any cost, whether it be life or death or even just embarrassment. Jesus says two things in the Gospels that at first seem like a contradiction. In Matthew 11, 28 through 30, he says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But then in Luke 9, 23, the verse we read in the beginning, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. These two sayings seem almost contradictory, but they work in harmony if you understand what Jesus means by denying ourselves and what taking up our cross means. I believe that Jesus isn't contradicting himself. I think... What he's saying is that as long as we live for ourselves and we continue to mix things like humanism and our rights and our egos and our arguments and our identities and what we are entitled to, as long as we mix all that with our version of what we think Christianity is about, we will continually bear the weight of all of that on ourselves. We will miss the peace and the rest that he offers as we let all of that go. True disciples learn to say what Peter said, Jesus, you alone are life. Picking up our cross and, deny, and dying to ourselves means shedding the burden we've made for ourselves first. Like the scene in Pilgrim's Progress when the giant backpack he's been lugging around finally falls off. If you haven't seen Pilgrim's Progress, you should watch it. It's old. I just dated myself, but okay. Jesus in Luke 9, 24, and that's the verse that comes, that comes um, right after the one we've been focusing on says, for whoever wishes to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake, they are the ones that'll save it. Are you catching it? We are being offered by the creator of all things a chance to allow him to carry our burden of life. A burden that we've proven over history not one of us can bear. The lie of humanism has moved into our lives like a cancer and has been eroding our very souls ever since. The darkness of depression and life's burdens don't go away when the pretty people on the internet try to encourage us saying, you can do it or love yourself because you're worth it or you are enough saying, the you are enough saying that only truly works when you add God to that equation. Taking up our cross is not the same as what people say sometimes when they're going through difficult times. Like, I guess it's just my cross to bear. Like those in a troubled marriage or a toxic work situation. Taking up our cross, I believe, is the idea that I've surrendered my life to Christ who sustains me, gives me a hope in eternity, gives me life so that I can serve and love my neighbor, check this out, without concern for what it costs me. I can serve and love my neighbor without concern of what it might cost me because there is no me anymore. I told you this is gonna be countercultural. This would get me thrown out of a lot of places. Jesus took up a cross that had my name on it and yours. Think about that for a moment. He gave up everything to love and serve us, sinners who rebelled against him. Denying self and taking up my cross means I've left the life sustaining to him. And while he's got me here, I can serve my neighbors and my enemies and my loved ones, even to the death if need be. It means that even if I'm uncomfortable with someone's identity claims 
or lifestyle choices or disagreements about philosophy or politics or religion, I can still show those people love and respect because I'm not living for me anymore. Denying self means seeing that there's a re- is, is sorry, denying self means seeing that there's really nothing the world has to offer. Not like him. Not like being near him, following him, or serving him as our King and Lord. Jesus said of John the Baptist in Luke 7, 26, 28, for I say unto you, among those who are born of women, there's not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he that, he that is least in the kingdom is greater than he. I'm almost done. Mark takes a pause. Mark takes a pause in his writing about Jesus's power and authority, and so we must. If we're gonna study through the book of Mark, we need to go through it. Somehow we must grab hold of Jesus' teachings, something he alluded to over and over, that we are not of this world. That this blip of experience we have here is just that in light of eternity, a blip. No matter what you accomplish, it's still a blip. What we can carry the burden of trying to make a name for ourselves, still a blip. We can exhaust ourselves trying to live life to the fullest, encouraging others to do the same in health clubs and bars and social media with all our quotes and posts, still a blip. We can milk all we can of our experience here in this tiny little planet, but if we gain the world and lose ourselves, our souls, we will have gained nothing. We will have put everything we have, every ounce of energy into a blip of time remembered by no one because they are but blips too. You still with me? You still with me? A disciple knows the answer, knows that he alone, Jesus, has the words of life. A disciple can lay down their life like John the Baptist did or even most of the apostles would do as well because they've already died to self. They see the bigger picture and they live for eternity. Paul was either crazy or he was on to something when he wrote these words, and this is what I'll close with. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in my body, I live by faith. Indeed, by the faithfulness of God's son who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray. Father, as I even say all those words, I can't help but look in the mirror and just want to point the finger right at myself and say, what a hypocrite. There are days I feel like maybe I'm getting a taste of this or maybe doing it right, but a lot of days, Lord, I'm just trying to get through the day. I I can only imagine that so many here are the same way. I, I bet, Lord, that there's people in this room right now even that they're thinking to themselves, this whole disciple thing, this whole dying to self, like that sounds fine, but if you only knew what I was going through in my real life everyday thing, you would understand why that's incredibly hard to do. But Father, your word, it's your word. It's not mine. I didn't make this up. Lord, it's your word that says that we find life in you. 
We find life in you. And so I just lift up my brothers and sisters here. If there's anybody here, Lord, that needs to sort of just pray that through or just ask you for help. Um, Lord, would you, would you give them the boldness to come get prayed for or whatever it might be? Um, Lord, help this church as we go through these transitions and become what you want us to become. Help us to become true disciples.